You're listening to Sassmouth Dame's podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Throughout her life, Diana's relationship with her father had been filtered through the media. Most kids with an absentee father struggle to remember their dads, but Diana had steady access to images and stories about Jack Barrymore. She read about him in newspapers and magazines. She saw him projected bigger than life in the cinema. She heard him on the radio. He became an ideal Prince Charming who would someday rescue her from loneliness. From the time she made her stage debut, whenever Diana Barrymore's name appeared in print, it was connected to her famous father. Her looks, talent, and craft were always compared with the legendary stage and screen idol Jack Barrymore. And who could compete with a legend? In her memoir, Diana was frank about the burden of living up to her father's name. I wonder if she might have had an easier time had she chosen a role model from another branch of the family tree, which had members in the acting profession going back to 1752. For example, Louisa Lane Drew, Diana's great-grandmother, was known among the theater crowd as the Duchess. Louisa's grandchildren, Ethel, Lionel, and John, called her Mum-Mum. She was a trailblazer in the arts as both an actress and a theatrical producer. She was born in England in 1820, before her parents emigrated to the New World. Louisa had made her stage debut when she was only a year old. She was cast to play a crying baby, but refused to cooperate and wail on cue. She was far too delighted to be center stage to do anything else but soak up the attention and smile. Louisa's stage mother made sure that her daughter worked in earnest at her craft. By the time she was eight, Louisa was a star. In Jack Barrymore's book, he includes an illustration of his grandmother dressed as five different characters that she played in the 1828 production, Twelve Precisely. In another play from 1828, The Four Mowbrays, Louisa played all four of the eponymous characters. Louisa married Irish actor John Drew in 1848. Together, they purchased the Arch Street Theater in Philadelphia in 1861. John starred in light Irish comedies. He didn't have a head for business, which left Louisa in charge of construction improvements, staging, and managing a cast and crew of hundreds, as well as starring on its stage until her death in 1897. Had Diana followed the maternal family line, she may have developed a resilience and a robust career instead of dying when she was only 38 years old. She had a short career in Hollywood, but Diana proved her inheritance to be more than the Barrymore chin. She had the spark. Whether she knew it or not, Diana began her film career by treading in her great-grandmother's footsteps. Diana played five different roles in her third picture under contract with Walter Wanger. In Between Us Girls, shot in 1942, Diana plays Queen Victoria, Sadie Thompson, a 20-year-old successful stage actress, a 12-year-old girl, and Joan of Arc. Her great-grandmother would have been proud of the range in Diana's performance. Diana waltzes through slapstick pratfalls, broad physical characterizations, quiet emotional moments with dramatic flourish. She even upstages Robert Cummings with a flag. Diana proves she carried the Barrymore curse, and I don't mean that in the way that most people use the phrase, but in the sense that Jack described it during a visit to Diana when she was in boarding school. 
The Barrymore curse was pillows and false faces. Diana has a field day with a Barrymore predilection for ham. In the opening scene, she's buried under rubber makeup and pillows in her costume as the octogenarian Queen Victoria. She seems like she's channeling Ethel, or maybe it's her uncle Lionel Barrymore she resembles in this scene. Diana plays a bratty 12-year-old doing things like walking on her heels, jumping on the furniture, roller skating, and having dramatic crying jags. My favorite scene, though, is when she plays Sadie Thompson. Diana is acting a role within a role that's fairly difficult, but she manages it seamlessly. She's tentative at first playing Sadie, and then she leans into the part. I wondered if she was going to brain Robert Cummings with that bottle on her hand. Please, you get it for me? I guess you don't know who I am. Oh, I know very well who you are. Now, will you please tell your niece I'm here? A teetotaler, eh? A mama's boy, a goody-goody, a fifty. <laughs> now, now, you just take it easy. You'll be all right with a little rest. What she got there? Is it a present for little Carrie, huh? No, it's, it's nothing, nothing at all. You wouldn't be interested. Sure, I'd be sure. I'll get Carrie myself. You'll tell me where she is. Suppose I can't tell you where she is. She isn't locked up, is she? Suppose she is. Would it by any chance be any business of yours? Not so fast, mister, not so fast. I'll send the kid down. You don't have to bust your shit. And how I'll send her down. If you harm a hair of that child's head... Suppose I do. Would that be any business of yours? Two other great scenes in the film pair Diana with Kay Francis, who plays her mother. The first is when Diana warns her mother that her new boyfriend might be shocked to learn that she has an adult daughter. Carrie knows enough about men already, the character she plays, to guess that his ego is too fragile to fall in love with a woman his own age. She tells her mother that he expects the daughter to be a child. At first, Kay is breezy and dismisses this as nonsense, but then Kay sits down at her dressing table, which has always been the cinematic site of private introspection for women. She looks at herself in the mirror and the doubt creeps in. In another scene, mother and daughter have dinner alone. They are dressed in matching satin-striped dressing gowns, and they have their hair swept back. They look like mirror images of regret in two stages of a woman's life. Without the quiet scenes, the picture would be too manic. The scenes don't become too maudlin, though, this one, thanks to the comic relief from Lillian Yarbo, who plays the maid Phoebe, who walks around issuing an uncensored string of complaints about the women she works for. And then Andy Devine shows up and suggests that they go find some hey-hey. Like most scenes in the picture, Diana turns this one on a dime. She switches from ruefulness, pledges to reform, and then jumps into a better mood. Why sit around and mope when you can put on a new gown and go out dancing? Diana's character would rather have fun than wear a noble hair shirt. What's astonishing about this picture is the faith that Universal Studio committed to Diana's build-up. They believed in her potential. The studio rigged the whole picture to showcase her star quality. Universal presents Diana Barrymore as though she would do for them what Diana Durbin had done when she saved them from bankruptcy and kept the lights on in 1936. 
Diana's place in Hollywood was cemented by her talent, not just the name she inherited. Each time Diana appears on screen, the picture tells the audience, look at the star. Even when Diana started to go off the rails in her personal life, when she hit the bottle too often and attracted nightclub brawls and bad publicity, Universal still gambled on her talent. They gave her top billing and pictures that she appeared in only briefly, such as Nightmare in 1942 and Fired Wife in 1943. Diana's mother was born Blanche Ulrichs, whose own mother was part of the Viennese aristocracy. After the family emigrated, the Ulrichs joined the ranks of the old New York society. You might expect the Ulrichs to pop up on Julian Fellow's show, The Gilded Age. The Ulrichs were in the same crowd as the Astors. In her mother's memoir, she includes anecdotes about Mamie Fish's impish sense of humor. As a young woman, Blanche Ulrichs marched for suffrage and started writing poetry during the First World War. She adopted the pen name Michael Strange in time for publication of her first volume of poetry. Michael kept her chosen name permanently and retired her birth name. Michael had made a proper society marriage and had two sons, and then she decided she wanted a bigger life. Diana's parents officially met one night after the theater. Michael recalled that a theater guild director approached her at a reception and asked if he might present Mr. Barrymore, who wished to meet her. Michael's book of poems had recently been published to critical acclaim. Michael was also making headway as a playwright. Her first play, Heard at Night, starred classic Shakespearean actress Viola Allen. Michael recalled having seen Jack Barrymore twice before. The first time she saw him was when she was 14 years old and was having lunch in the Knickerbocker Hotel with her mother. Jack was there with an older woman who wore heavy rouge and all black. He cast a morose figure with a droopy mustache and dazed eyes. It was probably a messy breakup scene she witnessed. And the teenage Michael felt that he cut a mawkish figure. She wasn't at all impressed with the actor. Michael saw him again just a few days before they officially met in 1917. She caught a glimpse of Jack's famous profile bending over a shop's display case. It wasn't in any old shop. This is the strange and Barrymore meet cute after all. They were too glamorous to have met in Woolworths. They met in Cartier's. Michael entered the exclusive boutique, noticed him, and then was quickly swept into a private room in the back to meet with Mr. Cartier. She left Jack behind on the shop floor. Michael was there to conduct important business. She wanted to trade a diamond tiara, a perfect replica of the Sarinas, for a single strand of pearls. When they met later at the theater reception, Michael noted that Jack moved in stagecraft, sideways, as though his clothes rubbed his skin the wrong way. He was impressed with her as a beauty and an artist. Their whirlwind romance eclipsed everything else in Michael's life, including her husband, Leonard Thomas, and two sons, Leonard and Robin. In her memoir, Michael glosses over the society marriage and divorce to Leonard Thomas. 
Barrymore streaked into her life like a comet blazing across the night sky. They were drawn together and burned brightly. Michael sat in the audience for Jack's performance as Peter Ibbotson and Richard III. She considered those roles his best work. Michael adapted Tolstoy's story, The Living Corpse, for Jack, which she retitled Redemption. Jack complained that she made his character Fedja too tame. He shouted, give me something to tear out my liver with in front of those so-and-sos. Playing in the jest, Barrymore summoned demonic vices in opposition to the romantic ideal he presented as Peter Ibbotson. Of his performance in the jest, Michael noted, never will anyone who saw it forget the savage ranting and groaning of Lionel while Jack skipped about him like a malicious blade of green lightning, robbing him of his girl, his manhood, and his life. Their tempestuous illicit affair moved towards the altar, much to the alarm of Michael's parents. They wanted their daughter safely married in society, not hitched to a painted dandy with a scandalous reputation. Michael's mother, Tibby, brought in a priest to keep the young lovers from marriage. The man of the cloth gave a sermon warning that nothing but sin would occasion their nuptials. With the catechism exhausted, the priest played a more worldly card. He asked, how could any woman in her senses marry a man who played the jest as Mr. Barrymore had played it? At this exhortation, Barrymore rallied from his slack demeanor in a chair and asked the priest if he had really seen the jest. Five times, five times, the priest shouted. From an ecumenical point of view, Barrymore's legendary talent was evidence enough for his poor casting in the role of husband. Michael's father agreed with the priest and refused to attend the wedding ceremony. It was held at the Ritz in 1920. Michael had taken a suite in the Ritz after separating from Leonard. Tibby worried that her daughter wasn't legally married since she had never heard the word Barrymore uttered once during the ceremony. Michael explained that Jack's father, Morris, had taken Barrymore as a stage name, but the family name was Blythe. Michael and Jack dressed alike, a sign of their symbiotic relationship. Jack adopted pleats and flutes from her skirts and had them copied in his trousers. He grew his hair longer, then had his collars lowered, which she instantly copied for herself. They wore a similar felt hat turned at a rakish angle. They cocooned into twins, mirror images of themselves. They were the most gorgeous couple in any room. During the first year of their marriage, Jack did not work on the stage. Instead, the newlyweds were treated to a farmhouse, which they transformed into a large working studio. They were united in their passion. Jack painted. Painting was his true calling, but he couldn't earn his bread as an artist. Jack lived a Spartan life when he followed his heart's desire, sleeping on piles of books instead of a bed. The starving artist routine. Then he took to the stage when his sister Ethel's theatrical company had an opening and he just got tired of poverty. Michael wrote a new play, Claire de Lune. It opened in April 1921 and starred Jack, along with his famous sister Ethel. 
He was certain that Michael's play would be proof of her artistic merit and finally silenced the critics who grumbled that she was nothing more than a society wife. On opening night, Michael took her bows on the stage in a midnight blue gown with rich red sleeves. The woman who sold Michael the dress was in the audience and she had suffered a seizure during the performance which may have been an ominous sign that the production was not to be the great success that the author and cast had expected. Reviews in the morning paper were savage. James Whitaker from the New York Daily News was viciously preoccupied with the author's schoolgirl fascination with the power of moonlight. He trashed Michael's construction and grammar Whitaker noted, the author thanks Victor Hugo and his story, The Man Who Laughs for the Framework, on which she weaves six scenes of free-versed interior decorating. Further on, the critic opines, as for the Barrymores, they denied their trade decisively. Haywood Broon, writing for the New York Tribune, opened his review by observing, spot any playwright to Barrymore's, and he could hardly fail to bring some brilliance into the theater. But he went on to announce that Michael Strange brought only fitful lightning to the Empire Theater. Her play was not good enough to deserve one Barrymore, let alone two. Jack turned apoplectic at the reviews. His outrage was born of chivalrous defense of his wife, And that night at the curtain, he took to the stage and delivered a scathing rebuke to the critics. Signs of trouble appeared early in their marriage. Although Michael and Jack shared the same outlook on politics and art, when it came to personal conduct, they battled over whose art took precedence. One of Michael's friends described their battles as a tennis game in hell where nobody missed a ball. They pitched their egos in full swing at each other, determined to see who was stronger, the writer or the actor. Once Jack resumed his acting career after the honeymoon, Michael was wary of all the number of times she watched women throw themselves at him or make sly overtures. Jack received the passes as if they were harmless tributes, a nosegay thrown at his feet. Jack fed on public acclaim, despite his protests to the contrary. Michael was only being petty if she objected to the way his fans carried on. But when they were in Paris, and Jack wasn't noticed, he responded with thinly veiled outrage, like a monarch who went without recognition among his own subjects. Jack's star continued to rise. Michael published another volume of poetry. One critic, reviewing her collection, Resurrecting Life in 1921, wrote, She is unusual, a trifle decadent, but she is always a poet. Privately, Michael worried about the effect of her second marriage on her writing, noting, My poetry took on a strange slant. It grew convulsed with angels and fakes. She had escaped a vapid society marriage for what she thought was an ideal union with her artistic equal. Michael soon realized that she would always be in Barrymore's shadow. An actor's wife seemed to work longer hours than other wives, she noted. At the theater, she was tired of hearing how lucky she was and how enchanted her life must be to be married to the greatest talent of the stage. 
Michael watched Lionel Barrymore's wife wait backstage, equipped with whatever he might need, everything from a pencil to a sandwich. She saw herself on a dangerous road in the back seat. Their rows were loud and often raged for hours, with an unsuspecting friend or dinner guest caught in the middle. Their battles often climaxed with dramatic suicide threats and then furious lovemaking. Michael admitted she once locked a bathroom door and threatened to drink iodine. Jack shouted that he would split his head open and break the door down. Michael listened as he rammed into the door and then crashed to the floor. She knelt by his side until he revived and all was forgiven. Or else there was the time that Jack threatened to end his life. During an argument when they were in Paris, Jack promised to kill himself. and Michael ran wild from their hotel searching for him. She thought he had jumped into the river and drowned. Later, when she had given up looking for him and returned to the hotel, she found Jack napping in the other room. Michael bristled at Jack's preference for solitude. She doubted they dined out as a couple a dozen times in their marriage. After a long interval, without having any guests, she made plans to host a tea. Jack was suspicious and asked if the tea was really what he called sex projection. Michael supposed there was no sex projection in the jest, now was there? Among Jack's many dalliances during his second marriage was his affair with Mary Astor, who starred with him in Beau Brummel. Mary was only 17 when they met. Jack offered to coach her performance, which turned out to be lessons of another sort. Mary Astor was naturally bowled over by having the romantic Barrymore as her first lover. Michael tired of his conquests, and during one trip to London, she took a lover, a man identified only by his first name, Terence. He was blonde, with floppy hair, and cut a romantic figure. But the practice of the single standard wasn't acceptable to Jack, no matter how much he claimed to be a modern continental. One evening at a soiree, Terence confronted Jack, asking why he wouldn't step aside and give Michael her freedom. Watching the pair from across the room, Michael realized that Jack was giving a command performance as a bewildered man at a loss to account for the state of his marriage. By the end of their conversation, Jack had convinced Terence that he had been the victim of a vampish wife. Diana had been born on the 3rd of March, 1921. Michael had originally intended to name her daughter Joan after the spiritual affinity she had for Joan of Arc. Just before the christening, Michael changed her mind. When Jack asked her why, Michael said, it sounds too much like John and that their child had to be an individual. Jack affectionately named their daughter Tree Peewee, Tree Pee for short. Michael called her daughter Diana Cat or Catkins. Michael noted that she often let Diana stay with her parents when she traveled abroad. Diana would curl up in her grandfather's lap and ask him to tell her the story of the old gray hat. She would get this funny, far-off look in her face that made her look just like her father. As a child, Diana recalled picking up her father's book, Confessions of an Actor, which had been published in 1925. She asked her governess about the photo inside. It was a picture of Jack holding baby Diana, 
Was this a picture of herself with her father? She had no real memory of him. Michael had thrown Jack out of the house years before they officially divorced in 1928. Later, Michael tried to reconcile and wrote him a letter suggesting that if he could reform his drinking habits, they could reunite for Diana's sake. But Jack had already closed the iron door. He replied that the separation was her idea to begin with and was probably for the best. He married Dolores Costello. Diana was a lonely child. She wouldn't have been the only child of privilege who was mainly raised by hired caretakers. She was with her governess almost exclusively, or her grandparents, or her mother's third husband, a stuffed shirt named Harrison Tweed. Diana rarely saw her mother, and when she did, it was usually by appointment in the evening for a cursory visit. Or Diana would appear briefly to entertain her mother's guests before her mother entered the room. Diana would deliver her line, May I present my mother, Miss Strange, as rehearsed. Diana felt awkward because her mother prevented her from making friends. She objected to girls who were not ladies or from the right family. The first time Diana remembered meeting her father was when she was eight years old in 1929. Her mother gave her 10 minutes notice that her father was stopping by for a visit. She told her to change her dress. Michael remained in the room for the duration of the short visit. Jack came and asked Diana if it were true that she wanted to be an artist. They did not meet again until one month before Diana turned 14. She was enrolled in a school outside Baltimore. Diana had eagerly devoured stories about her father. When she went to the cinema to see A Bill of Divorcement, she was fiercely jealous of Catherine Hepburn, who had played his daughter. Diana had bounced around schools just like her parents had done. In her new school outside Baltimore, she attempted to win friends by sharing concocted stories about the summer she spent with her father in Hollywood. Diana studied the fan magazines and the newspapers for items about Jack and the people he worked with in the studios to impress the girls. She applied herself to consuming media in a way she had never done with her school books. Diana wrote to Jack and begged him to visit. Jack pulled up at the school in a black limousine wearing a gray suit, a tan polo coat, and a gray hat pulled down over one eye, looking every bit the film star. Michael had permitted the visit, but only if Jack remained on the school grounds. He turned on the Barrymore charm to the teachers and the students. He brought records and a record player for Diana and asked about her studies. She had said she acted in the school plays and was currently playing a man's role with a stuffed pillow under her shirt. Jack nodded sagely. He observed that she inherited the Barrymore curse, pillows and false faces like your father. Diana noticed that as they talked, he resembled how he looked in scenes from a bill of divorcement. She couldn't separate her father from his screen image. It was all she had known. Jack was a hit with the students and teachers alike that evening. He proposed that the following night, he take Diana and a friend to dinner and a movie. Surely the ladies of the school couldn't object. The teachers gave permission. Diana chose an older girl to accompany them, 17-year-old Pamela Gardner. At the restaurant, Jack settled into his cups. He ordered drinks for the girls. 
Later in the cinema, he made out with Pamela, while Diana sat a row behind. And then he took them to a nightclub, where he drank more brandy. On the way back to the school, he passed out in the taxi. Diana and Pamela returned past curfew, but then Diana had to wake her teachers up to carry Barrymore inside because the taxi driver didn't know where he was staying. The teachers gave him coffee until he sobered up. Diana was ashamed, and Michael was furious when she heard the report. Diana rebelled at being treated like a child. She hated having to wear her mother's old cast-offs made over. And one time she wore a red dress to a dance at a boys' school, like something out of Betty Davis and Jezebel. It was a low-cut, flame-red gown, which made her the most popular girl at the dance. Until the headmaster intervened and asked her escort if Diana might change into another dress. Michael finally agreed that she could make her society debut in 1938, which entailed attending a series of parties and dances before the big coming-out ball. Diana objected to the horsey crowd and complained that she wanted more out of life, but they struck a bargain. Diana would take her place in society, and then she could find out if she had any talent for the stage. Michael was bohemian, but she wanted her daughter to fit in and make a good marriage. Diana dropped out of school when she was 16 and enrolled in the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. At first, she enrolled under her legal surname, Blythe, but then she changed it to Barrymore, which everyone already knew in the school, despite her mother's advice not to use her father's name. Nonetheless, she encouraged Diana's professional ambition. Michael watched her play Catherine Hepburn's part in the Academy's spring production of The Bill of Divorcement. And she decreed that Diana's voice was too strident. She didn't know what to do with her hands, but thank God at least she had a personality. As part of the preparations for her coming out, Diana sailed to France during the summer break with a paid chaperone. She would be measured and fitted for designs by Molyneux for her debutante wardrobe. As the ship was sailing, she was approached by one of the crew members who wanted to move Miss Barrymore into the honeymoon suite. The Barrymore name was its own kind of passport. During her stay in Paris, Diana did what many young women do their first time abroad. She fell in love. A boy with a title asked her to marry, and she accepted. She would have been a countess had they married. Diana felt a little bit reckless and wild, and they drank pilfered white wine. Back home in New York, Michael forbade the marriage. Diana argued with her mother, who was at least frank in her refusal. He would be sleeping with the chambermaid the day after the ceremony, she explained. When Diana did debut in December 1938, columnist Charlie Knickerbocker named Diana Personality Debutante of the Year. She flitted about the exclusive clubs and parties, was much in demand as a date and dance partner, but ultimately, Diana was bored by the life of a society deb. She was all but engaged to Tony Drexel Duke, but he dropped her cold after hearing a story about Diana being too loud and drinking too much at a party in Palm Beach. But really, Diana dodged a bullet there because a society marriage would have felt like a prison sentence to a headstrong artist. Diana was far more interested in her theatrical debut in Summerstock, where she launched herself on the boards in Hart and Kaufman's You Can't Take It With You. 
Three weeks later, Diana bought a copy of Time magazine. She was on the cover wearing a swimsuit in a July edition of 1939. Next, she auditioned for Broadway producer William Brady to join the cast of Outward Bound, which included stars Laurette Taylor and Florence Reed. At the audition, she met Bramwell Fletcher, the man who would become her first husband. During her scene, Brady abraded Diana's amateur mistakes in front of the company. It seems like he would have dismissed Diana outright if she hadn't been a Barrymore, but she joined the cast at $150 a week. Michael coached Diana through her Broadway debut. In his review for the New York Times, Brooks Atkinson declared that Diana made the best Barrymore debut in years. One of the stars, Florence Reed, was kind to Diana, but the supremely talented Laurette Taylor was not. She had wanted someone else in the role. Laurette's career was interrupted by her troubles with drink. There were performances in Outward Bound where the great Laurette showed up with drink taken and the backstage hands poured black coffee into her. Diana was judgmental. She thought it was a disgrace that anyone would take a drink before curtain, but she noted that Laurette was such a pro she could play the part drunk or sober. Years later, Diana would find herself drinking before curtain, followed by threats that she would be thrown out of equity, but that was in the future. When the company tour reached Chicago, Jack was there at the station to greet her train. Diana was relieved that he was sober. He reveled in playing the role of the doting father for photographers and reporters. He taught her how to pose for the pictures. Jack was starring in My Dear Children in Chicago, his first stage production since he gave the definitive performance as Hamlet. Diana watched her father hold the crowd in the palm of his hand when she saw him on stage. He lampooned the script, his star image, He ad-libbed jokes, and he gave the crowd its money's worth. Jack came to Diana's first matinee. She shook with nerves, knowing he was in the audience. Afterwards, backstage, he told her softly that it was very right that her name was Barrymore. She burst into tears. Diana exchanged the boards for the soundstage when producer Walter Wanger offered her a contract for $1,000 a week. At the news she was joining the family in the picture business, Jack wired that the guest wing in his house had been scoured and flowered. He was ready to get to know his daughter. Michael had consented to Diana's move to the film colony, but only if she kept Jack at an arm's length. Diana didn't want to hurt Jack's feelings, but she obeyed her mother's orders and moved into a hotel. Diana's arrival in January 1942 was big news in the columns. Several reporters printed variations of the same story about Diana's move to Hollywood. It went something like this. One night in the Macombo, Errol Flynn sat at a table with Robert Stack, John Carradine, and a young woman. Jack Barrymore joined their table, eager to know who was the Divine Jane. The mystery brunette deadpanned, your daughter. In another version... Backstage, after a performance of My Dear Children, Jack welcomed a young woman into his dressing room, took her hands, and asked to what he owed the pleasure of a visit from such a great beauty. Diana said, thanks, Daddy. In another version, 
Jack was in a nightclub with his fourth wife, Elaine Barry, when he became transfixed by a brunette across the room. He asked the waiter who she was. The waiter replied, your daughter, sir. One columnist quoted Jack, who supposedly said that if Diana had not been his daughter, she would have made a good wife. Reporters were turning them into a Greek tragedy before they even got to know one another. Although Diana didn't move in with her father, they did try to make up for lost time. He showed her off to his cronies. He took her to visit Lionel. But all the while, Jack was dying. She hated to see him lower himself by clowning on the Rudy Valley show. Jack was in debt up to his famous waggling eyebrows and had no choice. Sometimes he tried to shock Diana when he was in his cups by flirting with a showgirl or a woman in a nightclub. If Diana objected, he chastened her by calling her Miss Newport. He didn't want Diana to be a snob like her mother. During one visit, he was sick and weak. Jack handed Diana a slip of paper and asked her to ring the number on it. It was an escort service. Diana became every inch Miss Newport. She was horrified that he would ask. And finally, she gave in and waited downstairs until the woman arrived. And then she got on her high horse and left. After that, she closed the iron door on her father. How could he, she thought. How could he ask his own daughter to do that? Jack died of liver failure on the 29th of May, 1942. Suddenly, Diana was drowning in grief and self-recrimination. She was a barrymore, though. She had no time to mourn him. Part of the family curse was to carry on. She showed up for work at Universal Studio. She fulfilled her publicity obligations. She tried to be a professional. When inside, she was consumed by guilt and loss, and it tore her apart. Diana's career in Hollywood sputtered out in 1944 after eight pictures. She bounced from one bad marriage to the next. Two failed actors and a tennis player who trafficked an underage girl across state lines. Her personal demons were legion. But when you watch her on the screen, she is a barrymore through and through. Thanks for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. Too Much Too Soon by Diana Barrymore and Gerald Frank, published in 1957. Who Tells Me True by Michael Strange, published in 1940. Confessions of an Actor by John Barrymore, published in 1925. We Barrymores by Lionel Barrymore published in 1951. The House of Barrymore by Margot Peters, published in 1990. Special thanks to sound editor Tom O'Mahony. Thanks for listening.